You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Over the, the, the past year or so, I've gotten really into jazz music and collecting jazz records. And, and, and thanks to Brian Bowlerjack, who's in my GC, he's right here, um, my knowledge of jazz has increased and my bank account has decreased because I just want to buy more and more records. And, and the thing about a good jazz album is that you can listen to it over and over and over again and it doesn't get old. And my wife would probably disagree with that statement. But, but the thing about a jazz album is, is that it's, it's so layered, right? It's so complex, it's so nuanced that every time you listen to it, you hear something new or you notice something different. One of the most famous jazz albums of all time is called A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. I just happen to have a copy of it right here. This is A Love Supreme. This is Bring Your Records to Work Day, show and tell. Uh, A Love Supreme was recorded in one session in December of 1964, and and many people believe that it's John Coltrane's masterpiece. Uh, it's, It's an amazing album, and here's something that's really cool about it. The whole thing is about God. The whole thing is about God. This is what John Coltrane says. He writes this in the gatefold of this album. He says, this album is a humble offering to God. It's an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work. So it's an album about the supreme love of God. It's a musical suite that unfolds in four parts, and all the parts go together to make the whole. And so when you listen to it, it's, you listen to it all in one sitting. That's how this album or most albums are meant to be listened to, all in one sitting. And it's beautiful. It's emotional. It's, it's soaring at times. Rolling Stone magazine said about A Love Supreme, said this is a legendary album length hymn of praise. Isn't that great? It's a hymn. It's a praise hymn that you can listen to again and again and again and always be blessed by it. Now, I thought of that album this week because at the very heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians is a hymn. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. You just heard it read. Paul starts talking about Christ as the grounds for everything else that he's writing. Everything he's writing to the Philippians is shaped by who Christ is and what Christ is has done. And when he starts talking about Christ, it's almost as if normal language doesn't cut it. And so he starts to wax poetic here in these verses. And the result is what most scholars consider a hymn about Christ or a poem about Christ. These are some of the most treasured, most quoted words ever written by the Apostle Paul. It's almost like it's his masterpiece. And the hymn tells a story. It tells the story that's at the center of any healthy church because it's our defining story as Christians. It's the one we listen to over and over and over again and we keep coming back to it and we don't get tired of it because there's always something there for us. Kind of like listening to a good jazz album. 
right? It's, it's the story that shapes everything we are as a church and everything we do as a church. It's the gospel story of Jesus. He's the hero of the story. And he is, he is unrivaled in his humiliation and he's unrivaled in his exaltation. Those are actually the two movements of the story. His, his humiliation in verses six through eight and his exaltation in verses nine through 11. So we're gonna listen to this record together, so to speak. It, it really is a love supreme because there's unrivaled love here in this hymn. Side A has a downward movement to it in his humiliation. And then side A soars, or side B soars back upward in his exaltation. So let's listen to the two sides. Side A is considerably longer, uh, so we'll spend the most of the time there. But let's look at his humiliation. Look at verse five. Philippians two, verse five. Paul says to the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So this is a command. Paul says, have the mind of Christ toward one another. Now I want you to hold on to that thought because we're gonna come back to it. What we're talking about today is not just a theology lesson about Christ that's disconnected from our real lives, our actual lives. It's actually a theology about Christ that's meant to shape our real lives, that's meant to shape our real relationships. Like if you remember from last week, Paul is talking at this point in the letter about how to maintain the unity of the church. Like how are a bunch of individuals with diverse backgrounds and diverse opinions and diverse preferences, how are they supposed to exist together as a unified body? Well, if we're going to do that, it's gonna take humility. So we look to the humility of Christ. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul says he existed in the form of God. What does he mean by that? Well, verse six connects the form of God with equality with God. You see that? So when Paul says Christ existed in the form of God, he means that Christ is equal with God. Some translations read he was in very nature God. So Christ existed as God before he was ever born as Jesus in Bethlehem. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him because he's God. Hebrews chapter one, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How can he do that? Because he's God. Christ has always existed and he's always been God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, one God in three persons forever and ever and ever. And Paul says here in verse six that Christ did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, something to cling to, something to hold on to, meaning he didn't see his power and his privilege as something to be used for his own advantage. He didn't see his equality with God as something to be exploited for his own selfish agenda. It's amazing. 
Think about all the power and the resources that Christ had in eternity. He had it all. He had more than all the richest people who've ever lived combined. He had it all. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is the richest person in the world right now. He's worth $177 billion. Now, a billion is a thousand million. So just do that 177 times, and that's Jeff Bezos. The second richest person in the world lives here in Austin, Elon Musk. He's, worth, he's only worth $151 billion, so he's kind of small potatoes. Now, these guys have a lot of money, and I know they are philanthropic, and I know they probably give a lot of money away. But I'm thinking, hey, once you get past like 10 billion, 20 billion, does it really matter? Does it really make a difference in your life? Why even hold on to those, all those other billions? And, and the answer to that question is because it's yours. B- because, because you have a right to it. And that's the point. That's the point that Paul's making here. Jesus had way more power and privilege than $177 billion could ever buy and it was all rightfully his. It was rightfully his. But Paul says he didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp it for his own selfish advantage. Why? Because humility is his very nature. From all eternity, his nature is to think of others before himself. His nature is to give himself away. Jesus is God and therefore he acts like God in humble, self-giving love. God is humble. Have you ever thought of God that way? He's humble. And so Christ takes a step down. And here we start the the downward movement of the hymn. Look at verse seven. He's not clinging to his equality with God, holding on to it for himself, but verse seven, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He, He poured himself out. It's a metaphor. It means he made himself nothing. How did he empty himself? Well, Paul answers the question in the next two phrases. By taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men. Let's take those two phrases in reverse order. First, he emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. That means he became a human being. That means he fully identifies with the human race in in, in every way. He didn't stop being fully God when he became a human being, but he emptied himself of his rights and privileges as God, meaning he laid them aside. And so in becoming a human, he, he made himself dependent on a teenage mom to feed him, to change his diaper. He, he had to grow physically, just like all of us. He had to learn things, just like all of us. I think sometimes we have this weird notion that Jesus always knew everything. Like he's a baby, but he knows calculus because he's Jesus, right? No, being a human, he had to grow in wisdom and knowledge, it says in in Luke. The the only special knowledge that Jesus ever had was whatever was revealed to him by God the Father, which by the way is why he spent so much time with God the Father 
praying in independence on him. And he modeled for us what it looks like to be a human being in total dependence on God, which by the way is how humans are made to be, totally dependent on God. He had to walk places. He didn't just magically transport himself somewhere and be like, see you guys later, I'm not walking. So he would walk places and he would get tired and he felt sad and he felt tempted. He was a human being in in every way. But he wasn't just a human being. Paul says he was a servant. Look there again in verse seven. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word form is the same word as we saw in verse six. Remember, verse six said that he existed in the form of God, meaning he was God in his very nature. And this is saying that he took the very nature of a servant, meaning he didn't just look like a servant. He didn't just dress up like a servant. He wasn't pretending to be a servant. He was a servant. The word is actually slave, which hurts our ears to hear. But that's the form that Jesus took. He didn't just become human. He assumed the lowest rank. He took the lowest spot. You remember the night that Jesus was arrested and he was sharing a Passover meal with his disciples? There was no servant there to wash everybody's feet. And none of the disciples were about to stoop to do that and wash each other's feet because that was the work of a servant. That was the work of a slave. And they're like, I'm not doing that. And we read that and we're like, come on guys, somebody step up. (laughs) Somebody step up and wash the feet as if we would have stepped up and washed the feet. We wouldn't have. We wouldn't have. But Jesus did. It's incredible. One writer says, the incarnate son, God himself, dressed like a servant and washed the feet of his prideful, arrogant creatures. What kind of God is that? Who washes feet? You couldn't make a God like that up, even if you tried. So Christ is humble in his nature. He existed from all eternity in humility. Christ was humble in his incarnation in becoming a human, becoming a servant. But his his humility goes even down further. Look at verse eight. And being found in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Did you notice that? just like he emptied himself. No one humbled him, he humbled himself. He chose it. Everything we see here is a self-humbling. And this self-humiliation led him to obey the will of the Father all the way to the end. Verse eight, it says, he was obedient to the point of death. Let that sink in. His death was his own free will. Like he could have been disobedient. He could have chosen a different path. He could have said, you know what? I'm not doing the death thing. I'll wash feet, I'll preach sermons, I'll heal lepers, I'll dine with sinners, I'll make disciples, I'll do all that stuff, but death is a bridge too far. I'm not doing it. But he didn't waver in his obedience, this says. He didn't turn back. He followed through all the way to the end, obedient to the eternal plan of the triune God to redeem all of creation through a crucified Messiah. He was obedient to that. In Gethsemane, he was terrified of death. He prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. However, not my will, but yours be done. Truly, he laid down his life of his own accord. 
as it says in John chapter 10. He laid his life down voluntarily. But Paul says it wasn't just death, it was death on a cross. Did you notice he, he adds that just right there at the end of verse eight, even death on a cross. Why does Paul add that little detail? I think he adds it to capture the total humiliation of the death of Jesus. Crucifixion was the most degrading, most shameful way to die in Roman culture. Romans in polite society wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. It wasn't a, it wasn't a thing that you would even talk about. Uh, I heard this week that, and I don't know if this is true, but um, I'm gonna say it because it'll preach. Uh, I heard that in, in those times, the Latin word crux was often thought of as like a bad word, like an expletive. Right? So, so you would read verse eight like this. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a bleep, because the cross was too shameful to even mention. Jesus not only died, he died the most shameful death imaginable. And he did it for you and for me. He did it for the, his descent into death and death on a cross was for the salvation of us sinners. Truly, it's a love supreme, isn't it? So you see the full descent of Christ. He existed as the eternal God. He was born as a human being. He became a servant. He died, he not only died, he died on a cross. He went from the highest point to the lowest. He went from glory to degradation. It's the most astounding story of humility ever told. It's beautiful. Now, how does that connect to you and me? Verse three, skip back up to verse three. We heard this last week. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interest, but also look to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The will of God for the Philippian church was unity. And the will of God for our church is unity. And what Paul is saying here is that unity only comes when we stop selfishly clinging to our rights, to our power, to our possessions, to our privileges. Like, if everybody just clings to their own personal rights, then you never have true unity. You actually just have a bunch of individuals getting together in the same place. And that lasts for a little while until someone's rights are infringed upon and then it's like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. Paul's like, no, unity comes as we give up our rights and don't cling to them. Unity comes as we pour ourselves out, empty ourselves for the good of others. Unity comes as we make ourselves last. Can you imagine a community where everyone is racing each other to the bottom of the ladder? Like everyone is clamoring to be the one who washes the feet. I think, a, I think a community like that might change the world. The key to that kind of unity, according to this, is humility. And here's the good news. Verse five says we can actually do this. We can live like this. Look at verse five. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. Christ didn't just model a mindset of humility to you. He gave you his mindset through your union with him. So he's not just our example. He's our enabler. This story is not meant to just inspire us externally. It's meant to shape us from the inside out. 
And so cultivate a mindset of humility, the mindset that's been given to you in Christ. The reason that Jesus was able to give his life away on the cross was that he had become the kind of person who would give his life away. Did you know that that big decision for Jesus the man was cultivated by a lifetime of tiny little decisions of humility over the years, tiny moments of dependence on the Father. So that in the, in the big moment, he could say, not my will, but yours be done. And he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. Listen, we don't become the kind of people who would give our lives away uh, or love our enemies just automatically in the moment. We cultivate that in all the tiny little decisions through prayer, through solitude, through service. Dallas Willard, that's the way he talks about the spiritual disciplines. It's living like Jesus in all the little moments so that in the big moments, we would act like Jesus. Humility. Side A of the hymn is about the humiliation of Jesus. Now let's listen to side B. It takes us in a different direction. Uh, It's about his exaltation. And we're gonna look at it together. It's a shorter side. Um, Kent Hughes, who's a commentator on this, gives a great image that I wanted to share with you to to picture the change in direction in in this hymn. He he says, picture the gears of a catapult being ratcheted down ever tighter and and, and tighter with the movements of Christ's self-humiliation. So he was in heaven. He was born as a human being. He became a servant. He died he, 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 he died on a cross and it's just, it's tightening down so that this, this final groaning click of the gears creates this explosive tension. And then all of a sudden the gears are tripped and, and there's this there's springing upwards, this soaring, launching, indescribable exaltation. That's what happens in this hymn. Look at verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Christ has two parts. One of the parts has already happened. The second part has not yet happened. The the already part you see there in verse nine. Look at verse nine. After Christ had humbled himself, it says God exalted him. Paul actually invents a word here. He says God hyper-exalted him. God super-exalted him. It's the only time this word gets used in the entire New Testament. And it means that God could not have exalted him any higher than he exalted him. What happened after Jesus died and was buried? Well, everything went up at that point. Like Jesus rose up from the grave 40 days later, he was lifted up into the heavens in in the ascension. Uh, Then he went up to the throne to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. We just confessed these things in the profession of faith. So his resurrection, his ascension, and what's called his session, meaning uh, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, all of those are part of his supreme exaltation. There's, There's nobody higher than him. In fact, it says in verse nine that God gave him the name that is above every name. What's the name that he's talking about? 
Well, it's the highest name that Paul or anyone could think of. If you were a Jewish Christian reading this, you would know exactly the name he's talking about. He's talking about God's name. He's talking about Yahweh, the personal name of God, the the covenant name of God. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, called the Septuagint, the word Yahweh is translated as Lord, Kyrios. And here in verse 11, Jesus is called Lord. God supremely exalts Jesus by giving Jesus his own name. Isn't that great? I think it's worth pausing just to think about how much time and energy we spend trying to exalt ourselves and make a name for ourselves. Like, the human race has been grasping for equality with God since Genesis chapter three, haven't we? We've been trying to make a name for ourselves since Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, maybe even before that. Uh, Like, we want glory. We want to be noticed. We want our name to be remembered. And so we try to exalt ourselves in big ways and small ways. But the story of Jesus is that he humbled himself, but then God exalted him. God lifted him up. God gave him a name above every name. So in God's economy, if you try to exalt yourself, you'll ultimately be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. So let God honor you. Let God lift you up. He's the one who does it. Trust him. God has already exalted Jesus, but there's also a not yet component to this exaltation, meaning there's still something to come. You see it there in verses 10 and 11. This will happen one day. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he says every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, he means every intelligent being in the universe will bow to him one day. Every angelic being in in the heavens will bow to him. Every living human being on earth, every dead human being and every fallen spirit under the earth will bow the knee. Every knee will bow to him. Paul is quoting directly from Isaiah 45 here. Isaiah 45 is one of the most explicit chapters in the Bible about the uniqueness of God, that there's only one God and there's no one like him. I wanna read you a few words from Isaiah 45. This is just some select verses from Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, who created the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no other God besides me a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Do you get the point that he's saying here? There is no other. And then you come to verse 23 in in Isaiah 45 and this is what he says. God says, by myself I have sworn, like what I'm about to tell you, I swear it's gonna happen to me Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So in Philippians chapter two, Paul swaps out the name Yahweh from Isaiah 45 and he replaces it with the name Jesus. He's saying Jesus is God. And one day everyone will know that. One day he'll no longer be incognito. 
concealed. He will be revealed as the king for all to see and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The Philippians Christians were already confessing that. They were singing Jesus is Lord in hymns like this one. And they were doing it in a society where Nero was Lord, where Caesar was considered Lord, God. And so it was risky to say Jesus is Lord. Today, we sing Jesus is Lord in a society where the individual is Lord. I was trying to think about who's the Lord of our culture, and I think it's the individual. And so it's risky in a culture like ours to sing Jesus is Lord. But one day, every knee will bow to Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I just want to say this. If you have never in your life come to a point where you've acknowledged Jesus in this way, why not do it now? Like, why wait to do it? He is the Lord who left everything to love you. He is the Lord who emptied himself to fill you. He is the Lord who died so that you could live. He's the Lord who will one day come to, to renew all things and to reign forever. This hymn is at the center of our church family. It's, it's at the center of our lives as Christians. It's the story we talk about again and again and again. It tells us of a humility supreme, doesn't it? It, it speaks of an exaltation supreme. It tells us of a love supreme. The most supreme love in the universe was demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. This is our Jesus. And I want to invite you, if you don't know him, I want to invite you into the joy of knowing him personally. You can. You can know him in a personal way. All you would do is just talk to him. You could do it in the quietness of your own heart. And you could say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, you are my savior. Through your life, death, and resurrection on my behalf, you're my savior. Jesus, you are Lord. And then turn to him and begin to follow him in your life. Tell someone, get involved with a community of believers like this. If you're here and you don't know Christ and you have questions about that and you're like, I don't know, I'd like to talk more about that. I'd like to know more about that. I would love to meet you. I'm gonna be down here after the, the service and some of our deacons or elders are gonna be down here to pray with folks. Someone would love to, if you just wanna pray with someone or if you just wanna talk to someone just about that. Like what does it mean to follow Jesus and believe these things about him? We'd love for you to know him. There is no one like him. He's unparalleled. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.